the <laughs> the passion I once had to go try to find something to help me make money when rates were closer to 0% has left the building. And when that left the building, that meant that the ability for smaller enterprises and medium and large enterprises to more freely raise capital also went away. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome to 2024. We're again kicking off the year with a very broad look at commercial space, the state of the space investment market, where the venture capital has gone, and the space economy. If you have been listening to the episodes from December, you will know that 2023 has been a very challenging year for space companies that are established players, and more so for small and medium-sized space companies trying to develop and bring new technologies to market. Interest rates remain high. The harbinger of recession, the inverted yield curve, just won't go away already. The biggest consumer of space products and technologies, the Department of Defense, doesn't have a 2024 budget. And insurance rates have increased for all who seek or maintain policies after claims for satellite losses topped a reported $825 million in 2023. In fact, London-based Brick Group, which offers specialty insurance, it announced in November that it no longer liked the odds, so it cashed in its chips and left the space economy. It's not completely negative. Some companies launched their technologies and gained space heritage. SpaceX's super heavy launch system, Starship, it crossed the Kármán line into space before exploding. And the Federal Aviation Administration recorded a record for licensed operations, logging 117 launches and seven re-entries. So to dig into what events from 2023 will continue to affect space business and the space economy and what could happen in 2024, we have the downlink regulars Chris Quilty of Quilty Space and George Poland from Milky Way Economy. And we have a new guest, Jesse Klempner from McKinsey. Here's our conversation. Hello and welcome and thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Laura. Thank hey. you. Hey, Laura. Good to be back. Now, before we start digging into what should be a deep look into what's happening with space business for 2024, let's give the audience the opportunity to get to know who each of you are, where you are, and the organizations you represent. Let's start with a familiar voice. Chris, you should go first. Thanks, Laura. Um, Chris Quilty of Quilty Space. <clears throat> I've been writing financial research on the space industry for over 25 years. Uh, our organization based down in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, and we do both uh, research, uh, consulting work, and investment banking uh, in the space sector. And following Chris is another known and valued voice to the Downlink podcast. George, you're up. 
Thank you, Laura. Well, you're the one who's most valued. We really appreciate everything you do to bring this information to the aerospace and defense industry. Uh, particularly, again, happy 2024. I hope it's a marvelous one for you. In terms of Thank me, you. for those who don't know, I'm an economist. I am the chief economist for Milky Way Economy. We work in the space and deep tech sectors. We focus on small and medium-sized companies and providing economic analysis and research for them. Thank you. And a special welcome to Jesse. This is your first time on the podcast. So briefly, tell us a little about yourself and what you do at McKinsey, where you are, and what you focus on. Laura, thank you for having me. Happy New Year. Uh, Jesse Klempner, I'm a partner in McKinsey's DC office. Uh, I co-lead our aerospace and defense practice and led our space practice for a number of years. I spend most of my time advising aerospace and defense companies on strategy and corporate finance topics, as well as investors on the same topics. Excellent. And thank you guys again so much for kicking off 2024 with me. Chris, you are, of course, going to start this discussion. What are one or possibly two things that happened last year in commercial space, the capital markets, investors, or something completely different that is shaping this year's space investment environment? Oh, boy. Uh, Lots of things happened in 2023. Uh, On balance, it felt like uh, this was not a great year. Uh, Good effing riddance to 2023. you know, we, we had a lot of failures, both uh, launch vehicles and satellites, tons of insurance losses. That's one thing mo- most people probably aren't focusing on. It doesn't matter as much for the LEO satellites, which are most of the launches. But for GEOs, those insurance rates are going to go up significantly, like maybe back to early 2000 uh, levels. You know, it won't, won't destroy the business case, but certainly is not going to help the business case of a lot of the GEO providers out there. Uh, the one thing that that could change things in the other direction, you know, is, uh, you know, everybody's always top story uh, Starship. You know, we don't think it will be operational until kind of like the second half of 25. But basically in any scenario where you're you're trying to forecast out, um, you know, some satellite operator building a mega constellation or an imaging constellation or, you know, some cislunar business model of mining asteroids, there's kind of the A scenario and the B scenario we look at in all these. And the B scenario is what if Starship? So that's always, you know, it's the big one hanging out there. Um, The only other thing I would mention just as kind of a footnote to probably the last time we did this, you know, 2022, I had said was the year of direct to device. You had, you know, a dozen or more companies, including, you know, SpaceX and chip manufacturers and handset manufacturers and satellite operators all announcing these D2D initiatives. The one major development that happened last year, uh, in my view, was you saw this Iridium Qualcomm effort uh, to offer direct-to-device fall apart. Um, Now, that isn't the end of direct-to-device, but it is certainly a cautionary footnote here that at the low end of the service scale, i.e. text messaging emergency services, it sure doesn't seem like the handset manufacturers or or the MNOs are really interested in that type of service. Uh, It was a super simple solution. Qualcomm had the chip, Iridium had the the spectrum and the, the landing rights. All you had to do was choose to put it in. And the fact that they didn't uh, tells us something about that market that 
that we didn't know back in 2022, and it'll have implications on where things go forward in 2023. Just to clarify for me a little bit, because I wasn't paying attention to that. Why why didn't uh, uh, somebody pick up this chip and, and, and pick up this service? I mean, what was it that they just didn't see there was a market for it? And you keep seeing stories out there of other companies at least, you know, investigating and possibly even investing in direct-to-device. Yeah, so we've written a couple reports and and we constantly stay updated on the, the, the happenings in the direct-device market. I honestly think it's one of the more promising opportunities for the space industry, like revenue opportunities, significant billions of dollars if it works. You know, there's technical hurdles, there's business hurdles. This one, I would tell you, I think was a business hurdle, which is to say, you know, if if you went out and bought a phone from AT&T and they say, hey, would you pay 10 bucks extra a month for an emergency service? You know, very few people would pay for that, right? So there just wasn't a business model for them around it. Now, it's not to say that's dead. And I'll give you a, a great example, in-flight connectivity. So there is no reason on God's green earth why an airline would want in-flight connectivity, despite what they say nowadays. It's a pain in the ass. It's inexpensive. It's a million dollars in aircraft. This, this stuff fails. If it doesn't work, your passengers are pissed off and nobody pays for it, right? So why do they do it? And the answer is because, you know, back in 2005, uh, the guys at Aircell, which became GoGo, now owned by Intelsat, uh, went out and raised 170 million from from bankers, and they installed, you know, air to ground systems on the planes for free. But they only did it with Delta and American. But once those guys had the connectivity, well, you know, the 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 horses left the barn. Everybody else had to have that, or they were going to lose the business travelers. So this has become an unburdened cost for the airline industry that they have to provide this service now. Um, that will probably also happen in the handset business. Somebody's going to offer it. You know, Global Star does now uh, with Apple as an emergency service. They're giving away for free. If they turn off the free and suddenly a bunch of people sign up, then guess what? Everybody else is going to have to do this. So, you know, we'll see yet for direct device where things go. Again, I still think it's a pro- very promising technology if they get it to work. Uh, but 2023 will be more of a transition year with companies starting to launch, uh, companies like AST and SpaceX starting to launch satellites that can begin to demonstrate the service uh, on the high end, being able to offer, you know, more like uh, broadband connectivity. And Jesse, what are your one or possibly two things that happened last year in commercial space or capital markets, et cetera, that you think is shaping this year's space investment environment? 2023 was a year of big deals, Maxar, Ball, Inmarsat, and the announcement of a potential ULA deal. I think 2024 is less going to be a year of big deals, but it is going to be all of the 2023 big deals flushing their way through the system. I think there are going to be knock-on effects of each of the big deals that I mentioned in both commercial and government markets. And so while there may be fewer M&A or mergers and acquisitions headlines, the implications of the big deals are going to be far more uh, impactful in 2024 than they were in 2023. And George, as you are my economist, my space economy sensei, what are the one or possibly two things that happened last year 
that are shaping this year's space economy? Is it going to be civil missions, defense missions, foreign missions? You know, and by the way, that yield curve is still inverted, like for uh, how many months now? Yeah. So so let's start there. Let's start with interest rates. Um, and so when we start with interest rates, I think the very first thing that we have to talk about is that we had seven interest rate hikes in 2022. And then we had another five interest rate hikes last year. And so you have to think about it takes time for each one of these interest rate hikes to work their way through the larger economy. And so while we focus on space and we focus on aerospace, it's important to remember that the entire economy at large has had to deal with this. And what that means is that the opportunities for capital changed as those interest rates increased. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So if you're an investor, whether you're someone who invests in smaller projects or seed or series A, like like myself and like companies I advise, or you invest in larger deals, I know that's the type of deals that both Chris and Jesse were talking about, the capital now has other opportunities. And so if my capital can sit idly by and make five and a half percent or thereabouts, the the <laughs> the passion I once had to go try to find something to help me make money when rates were closer to 0% has left the building. And when that left the building, that meant that the ability for smaller enterprises and medium and large enterprises to more freely raise capital also went away. This also translated to the way that banks make money. Now, I'm not going to do the whole Welcome, Professor Pulente, Con 101 class. But uh, basically, banks make money on the difference between what they pay you on your deposits and what someone pays them what they loan out. That's simple enough that we can go from there. And so as that changes, that also affects the ability of the banks to make profits. So what we saw very early in 2023 is, of course, Silicon Valley Bank. Boom, where'd they go? Right. And then we went from Silicon Valley Bank to, okay, this translated to all of the smaller, medium sized enterprises, all the startups, all the people working on amazing pieces of new space technology, having problems with not only their financing, but also their banking relationships with Silicon Valley Bank. And that made everyone take a deep breath. Maybe that deep breath was overdue, but it certainly sucked the air out of the room for the first quarter. Then, as we moved into the second quarter and into the summer, we saw uh, Virgin Orbit, boom, where they go, right? And we saw other chips start to fall and a lot of weakness overall in some of the former SPACs that were now publicly traded companies trading well below their $10 um, initial pricing. And so that made everyone who was deploying capital reevaluate. And as that capital reevaluation happened, one of the biggest things, this is my third point, I promise I'll stop now. My third point is that... Um, what we saw of the companies that were able to find financing, particularly, as I said, you know, uh, Series A, Series B, or before, what we saw is that when they did experience capital raises, it was usually a down round. And so when I say down round, that's when a company raises money initially at, say, a 10 or 15 or $20 million rate evaluation. But then when they went back to raise more money, instead of being able to raise at a 25 or $50 million raise, uh, evaluation, they had to raise this time at five or 10 million. 
And so they they had to raise that less of a value as last time, which means the newer investors got better pricing than some of their first investors. And those were the companies that were able to raise funds. There is a huge amount of unmet capital needs right now. And that is going to translate into what the conditions look like in 2024, because none of this has been fully digested yet by the system. Yeah, and if I can actually pile on uh, George's comments around the the down round, and again, we're talking about you know private companies, venture funded companies. The public markets price this stuff in real time. Um, the private markets, you have to basically get a next financing event for people to actually look at this thing and say, okay, what's it worth? What am I willing to put in? And to give you one metric of where we may stand. Um, you know, there's plenty of firms out there that like PitchBook and others that track the number of unicorns. Uh, the unicorn is a term for a private company that has achieved a billion dollar valuation. And again, prior to 2010, there were maybe a dozen or a couple dozen unicorns. As we went into, uh, you know, crazy land in 2021, there were a thousand, twelve hundred of these unicorns that eventually they need to get public. I mean, for for you know venture investors, you've got two ways out. Either the company gets sold, i.e. that's M&A, <clears throat> and we've got an administration that currently is blocking any major M&A activity, um, which is really bad for the capital markets because people can't get an exit. The other way you get an exit is through an IPO. Uh, and the IPO window, the initial public offering, has been closed for about a year and a half, going on two years now. A couple of companies have snuck out. So it's like, you you know, you've got a big bowel obstruction here in the system where, you know, you're building up startup companies, the the capital is not there to fund them, the exits are not happening. So 2023 is going to be an exit, uh, interesting year where some of this stuff is going to have to work out. Sorry for the analogy. Um, but you know, the point is... You mean 2024, really, right? Yeah, in 2024. Okay, so just making sure which way the bowel is going to be dumping. Uh-huh, that's right. So the, the interesting metric on those unicorns, if you go back in time through prior um, market corrections like 2008 or even 2000, you know, a little bit different, but you had about 40% of these unicorns that did down rounds, right? And that's when the market normalized. You know, the other 60% got away, had enough runway, they could raise money at higher capital. And I think to this point in this cycle, we've only gotten through like 15% of those unicorns have yet done a down round. So there's probably more medicine that has to be, uh, you know, taken uh, before the market can fully normalize, at least on that, you know, venture funding, early stage company part of the, the, the equity financing system. And I think, too, something to add here is that when we talk about that venture part of the funding cycle and what that looks like, it's not just um, venture in terms of limited partners who then send their money to general partners who then deploy the cash. I'm also talking about corporate venture. So Mm -hmm. if you use as a proxy, and this isn't the only variable you could use, but there are others, but if you use as a proxy something like how much cash on hand, something like a Lockheed Martin, a prime, has right now, their cash on hand from end of 22 to end of 23, went up by a billion dollars, right? So with that cash on hand, that means that they are taking longer to decide where to deploy those 
those funds. Now, some of those funds could go toward corporate venture, Lockheed Martin deciding to pick up a technology to partner with someone who's working on technology as a joint venture, things like that, right? That's what corporate venture looks like. We don't see the same level of corporate venture activity that we saw in the last three years last year. And I don't think 24 is going to look much different because, again, with those cash on hands, they can now earn interest on them. They can do other things with them to make themselves more tax advantaged. And that doesn't necessarily look like them deploying those cash into other um, into other ventures who, quite frankly, need them right now. So then if you're talking about the space economy, I mean, is the space economy going to continue to grow? I mean, I, I it, it seems like it will continue to grow. But I mean, what do you what are you actually saying about? the space economy in this context? So, so I think the, the, the two forces that have to fight it out in 2024 that will decide if we have a growth year or not are the increasing defense budget spends on space versus the capital markets and their decrease in appetite for this type of spend. And I don't know who the winner will be there, It'll be directly proportional to, I think, how much more we see in defense spending. And that doesn't just mean U.S. defense spending. Remember, we had the big surprise to start off 2023 when Japan announced that it would double its defense spending. So we could very easily see another um, you know, <laughs> known unknown appear where someone else announces huge increases to their defense spending, which will then translate to aerospace and space spending. Um, without that, though, it does look like with the pullback in the capital markets, this might not be a growth year for space. Maybe an opportunistic take on 2023 and the implications for 2024. I think there was a, um, a lot of focus, maybe uh, too much focus on the capital markets side of it. Of course, uh, SPAC uh, or DSPAC companies saw their stock prices depressed significantly, as George and Chris have, have already mentioned. When we think about the core fundamentals of the market in 2023, they were still very positive. I mean, the anchor customer, uh, the US government and allied governments spent more in 2023 than they did in 2022. And I expect that all of them will spend more in 2024 than they did in 2023. The number of launches was up globally, again, 2023 over 2022. I expect that will continue in 2024. And then the core metric here is, look, revenue in 2020. That wasn't good. No. He might come back, though. Hello, nope. Jesse. Jesse to, prove that, Jesse, to prove that I like you, I'm going to make a consultant bandwidth joke here. <laughs> We may have lost Jesse. Let's see if he actually comes back later on in this um, episode. But just to kind of go on, though, what Jesse had just been saying about the number of launches, there was some interesting news at the end of um, last year coming out of SpaceX, and it also goes into valuation. So there are actually two pieces of news, both related to SpaceX, but that SpaceX has the ambition in 2024 to launch 12 times a month. That's thing one. And thing two, that 
it now has a valuation of allegedly $180 billion. That's what CNBC is reporting. And that number is based on a secondary share sale. So guys, Chris, George, and Jesse, if he is still here, you know, what do you guys think of that? I mean, what does that actually mean? So I think it's a, it's a good harbinger for the space industry. I mean, let's be honest. Um, not only did SpaceX create the environment for the growth of the space industry we're experiencing today, i.e. they took launch costs down by a factor of 10, <clears throat> but they're also sort of the, the bulwark for the industry, right? Everybody knows SpaceX. Um, they know that there has been a great outcome in space for investors in SpaceX, and they want to find similar investments. So look, everybody in the industry has to root for SpaceX, uh, even if you're competing them because you need them for launch, because uh, they're like the only game in town here for the next couple of years. Um, when it comes to valuation, look, I'm I'm not going to touch that. Uh, I can give you a breakdown of, you know, the, the, the pieces of SpaceX, i.e. the launch business and the Starlink business and everything else. And you can apply valuations or, or back into the valuations being applied to those businesses. Um, the end of the day, I think Elon Musk said it himself. He says, I have zero uh, concerns about access to capital. So uh, they did that 180 round, which was up from like 150. Yeah. Uh, there you go. This is one of the companies that did an up round in 2023. So uh, that's good stuff for the industry. Uh, maybe a little bit of a challenge for some of their direct competitors, um, but I'm all for it. George, what do you think? 180 billion? Is that right? Well, I've been told before that the market tells us what price it'll bear. And so someone was willing to bear that $180 billion valuation. I would not, but someone obviously was, and good for them. Um, better to get in late than never, I guess, is their thought. No, seriously, if you, if you look back at the uh, announcements, I believe it was CNBC who published the leak of yep. their... It was like their Q2 number was the first time uh, they ever managed to make money and they managed to make 50 million some odd dollars. Um, someone who makes 50 million dollars, it's really hard to understand how they're worth 180 billion dollars. Now, there are people that base evaluations on forward looking projections like we all do that have a lot more built into them than I might. And so, like I said, the market tells us what the price is. And what we know is that in a private market sale, someone agreed that they were willing to put in additional funding at that price. So because of the private market, that is now the number. Um, but remember, this isn't the same as a public market. And Chris is the expert on public markets. This isn't the mm -hmm. same as a public market where you have multiple buyers and sellers on a regular and reoccurring basis establishing and, prices for you. In real time. So in real yeah, time. Right? This, that, is this is a deal making. This is a deal making exercise. Right. Well, and, and, and there's one other thing yeah. just just to highlight around uh, this. Anytime you hear of a SpaceX financing event, there's two types of financing. There's primary and there's secondary. Right. Primary is where SpaceX takes you know shares that they create out of their treasury, and they sell them to the investors, and that money goes to SpaceX. Right. There are also secondary transactions, and because SpaceX has been public, has been a private company for so long, they need way to give their current investors and their employees liquidity, 
And so they host in a secondary exchange. You match the buyers and sellers. None of those proceeds go to SpaceX, right? That That's a private market transaction away from SpaceX, raises no capital for them, but it can establish a new price or value for the company, even though the company didn't, you know, wasn't involved specifically in that transaction. Um, this current transaction was a secondary transaction, I believe, though sometimes we find out ex post facto that SpaceX will sneak some primary shares in there uh, if there's a lot of demand, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and that's the thing. They, they have classically experienced by everything that we've heard, again, through leaks, that there's a lot of pent up demand for people who want to still get in and buy shares. So is that the price? It was someone's price. And that's and that's what we know. Um, I think that if we look at, again, trying to be more optimistic, you know, I'll try to invoke my inner Jesse, um, trying to be more optimistic. We, we do see other deal activity continuing. Right. So I believe it was just before Christmas, um, A-Rod announced that his SPAC was going to merge with, I believe it's Link um, for uh, mobile cell or sorry, direct to cell um, satellite connectivity. Um, and again, that's that's part of a trend we're seeing, right? Where is the market here? Who's willing to pay for this sort of last mile of connectivity or guaranteed connectivity? And there are business cases there. And those business cases, they sound a lot like the business cases around Starlink, around a number of other providers who want to do that exact same service. So there is growth opportunities there, obviously, and the market continues to be hungry for them. And I just want to also, though, circle back to SpaceX's um, at least reported 2024 ambition, which is to launch 12 times a month. I mean, already their cadence is pretty, pretty spectacular, but 12 times a month is at least three times a week, folks. Doesn't that sort of shake things up also in the launch market? I mean, doesn't that also put pressure even on on, on things like Rocket Lab and, and others? You know, what, what's the play here? Well, I think it's important to <clears throat> differentiate between the internal demand that they're generating for their launches and external demand. I mean, a lot of those launches are to put Starlink satellites in orbit. Um, and I, I think the real number to track is how many of those 12 launches per month are for external customers, be they commercial, government, or transporter missions. Um, to get a sense for, is there a true underlying t- demand for all of this? I mean, to cue back to one of Chris's comments at the very beginning about Starship, I-, I think the bigger question is going to be, when did companies start designing hardware for Starship? Because um, even if Starship was available tomorrow, there are not as many things that are optimized to use that fairing size as there will be a couple of years after the entry into service of that vehicle. So I think there's a there's a lag and it'll be an indicator of how much people are willing to put money behind that thesis. Um, I'll raise a, a different issue here, which, you know, it probably has nothing to do with SpaceX's manufacturing capability. It really comes down to an issue that most people have sort of overlooked, which is spaceports. Um, we have two spaceports, really, Vandenberg, which is not even a, a public spaceport. It's an air, a Space Force, Air Force, it's still Air Force uh, facility. Yep, space Force. And no, uh, they may be Air Force. I don't know. We'll figure it's it out. It's a but, uh, Space Force facility. Space Force. Yeah, they're still yeah they know where you uh, are, Chris. They will yeah. find you. 
the point is, I mean, I could share with you an article from less than five years ago where the folks down at the Cape said that they think they could theoretically get to 50 launches a year. Now, clearly they've exceeded their expectations, but SpaceX didn't hit their goal for this year because, well, they had like nine days of weather issues, right? Um, the uh, CAPE is a critical and almost a single point failure for our space infrastructure. Vandenberg does provide some offload capability, but I mean, they haven't hit a reasonable launch uh, cadence since the 60s. Um, maybe they can do what, what the CAPE has done in terms of scaling up their capability. And I think SpaceX actually even said, like, we want to launch 40 times or some large number out of Vandenberg next year. They've shown absolutely no capability, you know, to scale their operations. So maybe things have been going on in the background. Good luck there. Uh, Wallops ain't an answer. It's a Navy missile range and it's sitting in the air traffic uh, of, you know, Philadelphia, D.C., Baltimore, New York. Forget about it. That ain't a location. Um, You know, we're seeing other spaceports being built around the world. But fundamentally, it comes down to the weather, whether SpaceX can do that. And I think, I think too, not to, I'll, I'll come to Wallop's defense briefly because they are kind of in my backyard here. Um, their cadence has definitely increased. Uh, the amount of mass that they're getting to orbit has definitely gone up. But yes, there are limitations because of A, their position relative to weather conditions here on the East Coast, but also because of the traffic patterns, as Chris already mentioned. But, but Wallop's um, launches and the number, of, um, the number of people using those services from here has gone up. Oh, it's interesting, actually, what Rocket Lab is doing there, and also the fact that Rocket Lab recently opened or, or broke ground or something like that uh, for uh, a factory of some kind in Baltimore County. So, yeah, I, you know, things are kind of interesting there. I'd like to see how that shakes out before I dive a bit more deeper into that. But now that we have Jesse back, I'd like to get back on track a little bit. You know, Jesse, you and Chris, you guys track the satellite industry and both of you have products related to Constellation businesses. And first, Jesse, early last year, you wrote that essentially, you know, 2023 was going to be the year when the rubber hits the road, that some ambitions for constellations and mega constellations were going to succeed and others were not going to achieve any progress. Now, that you also wrote that it really continues, you know, to lag behind expectations. And you said about 45% have not yet had a single satellite launch. Now that was back in March of 2023. So it's been, you know, nine months. Did that change in 2023? And what are the prospects for 2024? So I think that the the biggest point from that was there will be a flight to quality. That's what that prove it year was about. If you want to raise a subsequent round of funding, you needed to have done something. You needed to have launched something. You needed to have won a government contract. You needed to have moved down the learning curve in your manufacturing process. And I think that that point largely held true. There there was a uh, certainly a focus on investing in higher quality companies that had done something. Um, I think that in 2024, you will hopefully actually see a, a, a bit of a loosening of that as the interest rates come down, if uh, what happens that the Fed has described. So we'll, we'll see if that actually occurs. And I think on the second point, th- there was actually a flight both in fundamentals to those businesses as well. It should not go 
unremarked, and I think George mentioned this earlier, but Micah Maidenberg at the Wall Street Journal uncovered you know, some financial reporting from SpaceX. They actually made money on Starlink. I mean, that is a shocking, shocking comment. And I think lots of people have glossed over it. I mean, they have launched thousands and thousands of satellites and people have said, well, they're never going to be able to get a return on it. It's some broader play. They're actually making money on that today. I think to, to George's point, it's not a ton of money, but it is money, which stands in stark contrast to where most of the industry is uh, right now. So I think that the the prove it, in 2023 largely uh, was borne out. And hopefully we see a bit of a loosening here in 2024. And Chris, you know, in the latest product from Quilty Space, there was a trend that really stood out for me. And I want you to explain it, or rather a trend that, that, that you are seeing. You guys wrote the looming availability of even cheaper, super heavy launch services will accelerate the trend toward larger, more robust satellites, particularly for proliferated constellation systems. And I find this really interesting because the procurement trend for the Space Force and more specifically the Space Development Agency's proliferated warfighter space architecture, right, you know, is as stated, they want smaller, cheaper, and quicker. And for the audience, the SDA's mega constellation, that warfighter space architecture, is supposed to provide low latency communications as well as track missile threats and more. But back to you, Chris, you know, this larger versus smaller. Chris, could you explain what it is you're seeing and the trend you anticipate? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we started with this discussion that, you know, SpaceX has sort of changed the game with launch prices. But it's not actually, it's not just launch prices. It's it's also launch availability, right? You know, 100 launches a year. Um, used to be that sometimes, I mean, even the Air Force would build test payloads and couldn't launch them for five or 10 years because they couldn't get a ride to space at any price. So um, what we have seen, you know, over the past 10 years you know, of SpaceX impacting the, the launch prices is that satellites are getting bigger. Now, on the micro scale, you could take somebody like Planet, right? They Their business model was initially around a 3U CubeSat. So that's about the size of a loaf of bread uh, doing three meter resolution. And then they've subsequently went to the SkySats, which were, you know, not five kilograms. They were about 110. And now they've got their Pelican, Pelicans and Tanagers, which are you know, 180, 200, 250 kilograms, right? Why are they getting bigger, right? And the answer is because the engineers go to management and they say, hey, look, you know, if you give me 10 extra kilograms, I can give you three times performance. And that's a trade-off that people are willing to make at these launch costs. Now, if you take it to the extreme with Starship and instead of paying, let's say, $5,000 a kilogram uh, for, for a ride share, Actually, it's up to sixty five hundred. Let's say you get down to a thousand dollars a kilogram. That's the goal. Kilogram, Actually, right? the goal, the stated goal, is a thousand dollars a kilogram. Yeah. Yeah. So, so suddenly, you know, the engineers keep coming back and saying, "I want more and more widgets thrown on this satellite, more and more sensors." Um, and you do have examples. There are a couple companies I can think of offhand. Uh, one, Vast, which is building a private space station. The other is a company by the name of K2 Space, which is building a, you know, 10 ton geo satellite. And both of those companies have effectively sized their product for the Starship, right? To, to fit within the fairing 
uh, of a starship. And so their business models are literally dependent on the success of starship. Um, you can call them, you know, pioneers and, and the early leaders, or my goodness, they, they better have a long runway uh, of capital if we're right. And starship really isn't operational until 2025. And George, you're very much in the trenches with newer companies. And you and I, and even folks at Space Systems Command, um, have been concerned that there are going to be a number of bankruptcies, some new technologies that the Department of Defense may miss out on because of a lack of capital, which may also be due to a lack of a good business plan. What's the outlook for 2024 and what should these vulnerable, perhaps even distressed companies do? What should the Space Force or the Department of Defense writ large do? Ooh, okay. Um, well, that's a tough one. What should Uncle Sam do? Oh, it's not no. that tough. You've been talking to me about it for quite some time. Go well, on, George. Well, Vent so, your spleen. I will. I will. All right. So I'll, I'll open it up for the exam. No, what I would say is that um, if we want to maintain this pace, then we're going to have to see Uncle Sam support the space technologies that are coming out of the smaller and medium-sized companies during this economic period. With interest rates where they are, with capitally constrained or capitally um, aloof uh, venture and PE firms, you're going to have to have someone step in. Um, we'd all like to see it be a private market solution, but I think the private market will continue to sit on their quote unquote dry powder. That's just a fancy word for saying the money they're not using until they see stronger signals from Uncle Sam. How can Uncle Sam provide those signals? <clears throat> I don't think... Um, increasing SIBR and SIDR money alone would be enough. SIBR and SIDR might, just by way of definition, are the grant funding opportunities that smaller and medium-sized companies get to develop space technology. I think increasing those would help. I think really what we need to see is a uh, Pelasys and InQtel type model specifically tasked and specifically directed with a mission of space. I know InQtel dabbles in space. I know they've had some success in that sector. I'm not taking away from that success or those efforts. I just think that it is much more appropriate that something be stood up that models that, mm -hmm. that specifically focuses on space, and that that can be a, a whole-of-government approach that will be galvanized through that mechanism. Uh, we've seen the offices, um, other offices come out. They're offering um, different types of debt funding and debt funding opportunities for space and for defense and aerospace. I think those are all good solutions too. And I'm glad to see those happening. But if you want to unlock uh, capital markets in the terms of equity coming into companies, more capital coming to companies, you're going to have to do this. Um, I don't think it's something that needs to be, um, you know, long in the tooth. We're not talking about a, a new permanent structure. I think the markets will come back around. Um, but I think that if we're realistic, that for a very long time, uh, it was either 1984 or 1985, the, the launch high watermark was set. And then we went from a period of time for close to 30 years where we never even got close to that number, right? So it was like 130-ish, right, in the mid-80s. We never got close to returning to that number until just recently, right? And now what we've seen is we've seen launch numbers go from 135 in 2021 to 179 in 
2022 to 210 last year. That is tremendous growth. And that is pushing all of this forward, not just in terms of the economic benefits, the companies that are participating here, but also the capabilities they're being provided to NASA for space and observation, to Space Force for its defense mission. All of those things get to ride on that um, high watermark. And if you want to see that high watermark continue, that means this industry will, is going to need additional support. I love George's idea around providing more entry capital, as, as I'll describe it. I, I also think there needs to be a lot more pull on the other side, which is helping uh, companies cross the valley of death through a far, either a FAR Part 12 mandate, and I'll explain FAR Part 12 in a second, a FAR Part 12 mandate for space companies, or um, an increased number of programs of record that pull from space companies, they're, they're, sorry, from commercial space companies. There really aren't many of either of those things. Um, and the distinction there is that FAR Part 15 are these negotiated government contracts where the government writes the specifications, they're highly dense and technical, and they're like, I want exactly this, you will customize your product for me. Uh, FAR Part 12 is the government saying, I'm going to buy a commercial thing at an agreed upon price, and I'm buying what the commercial market gets, um, which is how most of the young, innovative uh, space companies would prefer to sell if that avenue was available to them. I love Jesse's point here. Um, something I want to bring back is something that Laura brought up earlier, which I think might throw a wrench in this whole thing, which is the space architecture that we're talking about. The space architecture that we're hearing is the wave of the future is smaller, faster, cheaper. But at the same time, as we're looking at the, the space technologies that are coming out of these innovative companies, it is, I can give you more, but like Chris said, I can give you more, but it's going to be another five kilograms. Or I can give you more, but I'm going to need more bandwidth, or I'm going to need a little bit more of this. And so there is a also a, a pull from the technology side where I'm not exactly sure they would be able to, to set up their FAR Part 12 in a way to acknowledge that um, <laughs> if, if you make it a little bit bigger, they will come, right? And we can, we can do these amazing things, but it's not just going to be how many more toasters and bread boxes can we put into space. Some of these are going to have to be bigger and more complex. All right. We are running out of time, so I'm going to have to go straight towards the one question uh, that Chris Quilty hates, but of course you'll be last. I know you hate giving us predictions, but you get some time to think about it. Jesse, you're up first for this one. What's going to move the needle in 2024 for you? Or what should the Space Force or the Department of Defense or perhaps even Congress do in 2024 for space business and defense? Jesse, what do you think? The biggest thing that we haven't talked about is Vulcan. We've spent a lot of time talking about access to space. Uh, and a lot of that has been about SpaceX. Uh, I think if Vulcan is successful and is able to ramp, it'll change the way we talk about access to space in 2024. And George, what about for you? The thing I'm looking at most for next year is, do we see a repeat where we see more of these space technologies um, being held in companies that are, are there A, failing? or be going through down rounds, uh, both 
of those things mean that there are potentially opportunities being left on shelves and there are things that are going to be mothballed that we might really want to have um, a few years from now if things heat up geopolitically. And that's my biggest worry. I don't see anything right now on the horizon, unfortunately, that changes that. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. You bring up you bring up the rear on you're, this one. You're, Go you're for it. High. Okay. Yeah, um, I did, but you can do it. Well, I hate to give a nod to to George for anything, but I, I mean, I'd have to say Jerome Powell. I mean, as much as I like to think there's all sorts of cool things happening in the space industry, at the end of the day, you don't fight the Fed. Like if the Fed starts cutting rates, everything's going to be good. Um, and we need some good because if that doesn't happen, 2024. You know, 2023 was, I said, not a great year. 2024 is going to be ugly. Um, I've seen a statistic, it was maybe PitchBook or Crunchbase, I don't know, that, you know, two-thirds of all startups have less than a year of of cash runway, right? So if they don't raise money, you're going to get a ton of bankruptcies. Now, that's good, right? Um, There's no shortage of good ideas in this industry. There's too many Me Too companies, uh, think about the launch industry, and a little bit of consolidation is a good thing uh, from that perspective. Uh, the number of the companies that raised money in SPACs didn't raise enough. Again, <clears throat> they've got capital liquidity issues. Uh, you know, we're tracking everybody's uh, cash break even, and you know, a lot of them will hit it by the end of 2024. So, uh, you know, on the on the capital markets front. 2023 didn't turn out all that bad. Our, our space sector so- stocks were up like seven or nine percent. S and P was up 26, so it wasn't great. In um, 2023, I think it was the bottom, right? The venture capital raising, venture deployed, M and A deals, M and A, you know, deal count. Everything kind of hit bottom in like second or third quarter of last year. I, we haven't seen the the, the Q4 numbers yet. <clears throat> But it feels like 2024 will at least be sideways, maybe a little bit better. Not that there won't be damage done because there's not enough capital to feed everything out there that needs it. But, you know, in that light, you had a couple of good news stories coming out of 2023, which, you know, Telesat, which we had written down for dead, uh, pulled the rabbit out of a hat with a, a pretty cool deal uh, with MDA to, to get their constellation up and, uh, you know, Amazon. Got, got their first two prototypes, and they say they're going to be offering beta service by the end of 2024, this year. So um, there are some interesting things to look forward to in the year ahead. Thank you very much, gentlemen, and um, hope to have you all back on again soon. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Happy New Year again. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.